0: Welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap between what you believe and what you actually experience. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. Now, before we get into today's conversation, I'd like to let you know that today's episode of Restoring the Soul is being brought to you in part by the great folks at Riverside.fm. As a podcast producer, I'm always looking for tools to assist me in the creation of the program. Now, not just cool gadgets with great bells and whistles, but technology that makes me a better producer and something that causes our podcast quality to soar. We started leaning into Riverside during COVID and could instantly hear how much better and more professional the podcast started to sound. And most recently, Riverside has added some great features that help take our social media game to the next level. Now, Riverside is user-friendly, and it's also affordable. I couldn't imagine producing this show without them. So check them out today and all the other amazing features they have at Riverside.fm and create an account. You can get started by using the code MICHAEL10 for $10 off a subscription. Just click on the Riverside.fm link in our description. Now, in this episode of Restoring the Soul, Michael welcomes Laura Berenger to the podcast. Over the past decade, we've seen incredible examples of toxic church culture that has upended congregations and has left thousands of church staff and congregants confused and shaken. In 2020, Laura co-authored a book with her father titled A Church Called Tove," Forming a Goodness Culture that Resists Abuse of Power and Promotes Healing. Together, they dedicated the book to the Wounded Resistors, which provides a framework to create a good church culture rather than a toxic one in order to prevent further abuse. And as you'll hear in the interview with Michael, Laura has firsthand experience of toxic church culture. she's a graduate of Wheaton College, makes her home in the Chicago suburbs with her husband and three Beagles. So, without any further delay, here's your host. Michael John Cusick. Laura Berenger, welcome to
1: the Restoring the Soul podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be with you today.
1: Well, the book that you wrote uh, around a year ago with your dad, Dr. Scott McKnight, the renowned New Testament theologian and scholar, is called A Church Called Tove, and I always forget the whole subtitle. Uh, forming a goodness culture that resists abuses of power and promotes healing. And wow, has this book been timely. Mm -hmm. So once again, thank you for writing the book. Um, You were talking to me earlier before we started the recording that you're not a full-time writer. You're a teacher. So Mm -hmm. talk to me about the, the, the context of what was happening. It was rather personal with your experience at Willow Creek that led to how this book come about.
2: I like you said I'm a teacher I've spent twenty years of my career in education, working in primary education classrooms and writing a book certainly one like this is not something that I ever planned or envisioned for myself. It started for us honestly with the unfolding of the Willow Creek story where an article in March 2018 an article about our former pastor Bill Hybels broke in the Chicago Tribune. And the headline immediately grabbed our attention because we had attended Willow Creek for over 20 years and were familiar, obviously, with the pastor and the church. So kind of rolled my eyes, honestly, when I read the headline. But then when we started reading the article, I read it aloud to my husband. We were frankly stunned because we knew the names of the women. We knew the names of of the women that were bringing these allegations against Bill Hybels. And we knew them well enough. Some of them we had known for over 20 years. They were family friends, knew them well enough to know that they weren't the type of people that were going to just make up a story to collude to take down Hybels before he retired, as he was claiming. And that's how it began for us, As we would hear Willow Creek calling them liars knowing that that couldn't possibly be true and dealing with the instability of both of those stories. I remember sitting on my living room couch when I realized it was a horrific realization. I thought only one side could be telling the truth. And it's really disturbing either way. And I think that it's the women that are the ones telling the truth. And it was really my first experience with a church that I knew and that I loved Purposely, intentionally misleading people to protect their reputation. It was a, it was a very difficult, sad, infuriating time.
1: Well, you just brought up one of the the first questions that I'd want to ask, and so it must have been heart wrenching because you're personally involved with those people and knew them. That it's either that this quote great leader and pastor that uh, was overseeing the church that you're part of, he's lying. Um, uh-huh. or he's done something really horrible, which then opens you up to a whole other reality, or the women are lying, um, in which case that's horrible, or they're victims, and that's horrible. So there's like no win in it. But then that the church created, and this is so much a part of this toxic kind of culture that uh, you unpack in the book, the church creates a response which is almost Textbook and characteristic with what happens. Yeah. Can you talk about that kind of response that's part of the toxic culture?
2: Yeah. So what we saw, um, frankly, I understand now. Like you said, it's sort of textbook. It's a pattern. At the time, I, I guess I was just naive. I hadn't. I've heard stories, but I hadn't personally experienced them myself. But what we saw is rather than a church tell the truth, we saw a church spin stories. Equally disturbing, and I've read this now over and over and over in the past several years, is it wasn't just Bill Hybels alone who propagated the narrative. There was a team of people around him. My dad calls them retainers that are loyal to him, that either believed him or or knew the truth and and were too deep in and um, intoxicated with power, um, that also spread the narrative. So you have a congregation sitting there listening to their leaders and believing what they say, as you should be able to. So you have a pastor, you have elders, you have executive pastor, all claiming the same thing, which is the women are lying. And you now have a congregation, many people believing them. So that was what was so disturbing to me is not only that I was able to identify the pieces of the story that were not true, or they were like, there were parts of it that were true, but then it was twisted in Willow Creek's favor but then I would sit down with friends, and they would be—they would believe and follow the narrative that the elders had had um, put out, and they would be angry with me for for not believing it or for calling Willow Creek out to tell the truth. So, to simplify it, what we saw was—it's sort of like when a human is caught in sin, right? We want to hide, we want to protect our image, we're embarrassed, we want to. Um, do everything we can to protect ourselves and um, not acknowledge what we've done. And that's kind of what we saw from the church, like on a larger level, is that rather than own it and say, we're really sorry and receive God's grace, they didn't do that. Instead, they came out fighting and called the women liars and created, there's no other way to say it, created narratives that just were not true.
1: And also, as you described, just in that short response, there's a trickle down effect where there's kind of the macro undoing and the either or, you know, I'm telling the truth or you're telling the truth. But you talked about how then people were angry at you or hurt by you because then you become a betrayer for having a certain kind of position. And then it's just like a cancer that grows all throughout the body where people start to take sides. And no one in their sin ever thinks through what the fallout or what the dominoes will be that fall forward.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that, Michael, because I have said to friends so many times the ripple effects of one person's sin, and not just sin, we all sin, but the refusal to confess and surrender to the truth, the ripple effects of that have been I'm just astounded at how far reaching they've been. I still have friendships, friends that still will not speak to me because what I publicly said about Willow Creek.
1: Hmm. It's
2: astounding. Gosh. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and so again, I can only imagine the pain and the heartache that you've gone through. Was the book healing to write the book and to dive into this from more of a, a kind of literary research perspective?
2: It was. It was equally hard, but also equally healing. I felt all along, I've, I've always felt like it was a prompting from the Holy Spirit to speak and write. And it's not an opportunity that I, like I said, I'm a teacher. I don't have a platform. At least I did not at the time. My father did, and he was willing to use it. And he had had publishers writing, asking or calling, asking him to write. Um, a book about Willow Creek, which he declined at the time. But as more time went on, and I felt like he had something to say, I felt like I had something to say, we decided together to write a book that was ultimately redemptive. So it was truthful. But the reason that we spoke and wrote and said what we did is because we always felt and still believe that that's not how God designed the church that we have fallen people leading the church, but it's, it's not right. It's not how it should be. And we wanted to offer an alternative, an alternative to hiding and abuses of power. We, by the way, we, we wrote mostly about sexual abuse. We get a steady stream of letters from readers, mostly for about power abuse. And so we have always just felt like this isn't how God would want the church to be and how people to treat each other. And that was the impetus for, for why we wrote.
1: I know that power abuse uh, can have a whole uh, separate context where it's not about Sex and the rise and fall of the Mars Hill podcasts, which have become so popular and, and waking a lot of people up to, oh, my gosh, that is abuse and manipulation. And it's unhealthy. But also those podcasts are wounding people because it it mm-hmm. then makes them um, come to terms with the pain that they've and the abuse that they've suffered. But would you say that all kinds of abuse in an institution or especially a church, that it all involves a power dynamic?
2: Mm hmm. Yeah, I would. From what we've learned in the past few years, and I'm not an expert, but I've read a lot, and I've researched a lot. And sure, sexual abuse, for example, comes down to an abuse of power. It, it always is about a power imbalance, where you have one person who has more power than the other, and victimize the people beneath them.
1: Yeah, and yeah. then there's this response, and I forget if um, if you wrote about DARVO, this acronym in your book, but I know that it's common with um, church abuse and religious abuse, but it stands for deny, attack, and then reverse the victim and the offender, and that is the exact textbook yeah. strategy that was used here. So first yeah. to deny, no, it didn't happen, and anymore, whenever there's an accusation, I just kind of sit back and say, we'll see, because there's usually the slow unfolding of you right. an acknowledgement of maybe a little bit of abuse and I'm really sorry, but then it becomes bigger and bigger. Um, but then when denial doesn't work, that there's this attack to come out against. Right. And that's really this reversing that the original victim is now the perpetrator because of how dare you say these things to our beloved leader.
2: Right. Yeah. I actually, I think I wrote about Darvo at one point. I think it got cut. My dad kept cutting things. I'm like, People want to read. He's like, Laura, people don't want to read 40 pages about your story of Willow Creek. I said, yes, they do. It's page turning. He's like, no, it's, it's going to get cut. But anyways, at one point, Darvo was in the book and I learned about it through the process of writing. And again, I don't attribute anything of this to my own self because it's I believe that it was it was a, a spiritual um Process for me, and the Holy Spirit directed me and gave me these words. But I was able to so clearly see Darvo with Willow Creek. I thought I, d- I didn't understand why people, other people, weren't able to see it and why we, they were so mad at me for saying what I thought was obvious to everybody. But it was classic with Bill Hybels. He reversed the, the R in Darvo, reversed the victim and offender. So all of a sudden Bill Hybels is on stage crying, saying how bad, how this has been really hard for his family. And he had to, you know, his grandson has heard about this and he doesn't understand why someone would do this to him. And all of a sudden you're feeling bad for Bill and mad at the women. And the narrative is completely flipped. And, I understand, you know, I understand now I have a lot more sympathy um, as time has gone on, but it's hard to believe it's, it's almost like it's out of our, our worldview to, if we believe that our pastor's telling the truth, it can shatter our faith, right? That we so closely connect our pastor with God that we want to hold on to him telling the truth, or it might really destroy the faith that we've built up. So I have more sympathy and understanding now, um, but I I could just see the Darvo so clearly with the Willow Creek story. Um, It was infuriating.
1: Well, again, I can only imagine, you know, since all of that played out with Willow Creek, we've seen in our political uh, world and environment in the US that if you have a common enemy, you can have a massive following and that seems to be part of this yeah. that the deny, the attack and then the turn the tables is you know join with me at this terrible person and it's right. a way to uh, get out from under the scrutiny. You talked about the in the book and I love this phrase that the impact of this kind of toxicity which I'd like you to unpack in a minute, is a loss of innocence and disillusionment. And I, for, as a therapist, I thought that's exactly on target, but it wouldn't necessarily be the words that I would initially think of. Like people are devastated, people are angry, et cetera. But the loss of innocence is that sense of, oh my gosh, this leader who I've trusted, almost a childlike parent shepherd mm-hmm. relationship, that innocence is just shattered. But then the disillusionment is, how do I trust? How do I believe? Who do I trust? Where is my spiritual home? And what I witness is that with the deconstructors and the nuns and the duns, N-O-N-E and duns, we oftentimes speak about, well, you know, they're rationally having a hard time make sense of the faith, and they're not sure what they believe anymore. But it doesn't seem to be a theological issue as much as it's a heart issue where people are traumatized Mm -hmm. and they just can't function in the culture that they once could in the way that it was done. So have you seen that?
2: Yeah, you know, as you were talking and then you said the word at the end, all I could think of was trauma, that it has been a trauma for people. And disillusionment is a good word. We wrote somewhere in the book that the truth was so horrific, it was so unbelievable that I think people chose not to believe because it was easier not to believe than be confronted with the truth. And loss of innocence is another good way to describe it. For me, this was the first time I understand now that this is a pattern and that this has happened over and over and but at the time I didn't, I was innocent of, of it as well, of the reality of how much abuse and power and spiritual um, dysfunction happen in the church. But it's so hard to grapple with the truth, but we know that ultimately it's the truth. You have to accept the truth to be free. And over and over and over as as I researched and wrote, I've said again it's not God it's not he wants us to tell the truth he loves he doesn't want people to fall in sin and create false narratives he wants us to come to him and confess and be known and be receive his grace and receive his forgiveness so when people ask me that question like I've I've personally never been I've been disappointed with leaders I've, I felt the loss of innocence. I felt this, the word I always used was disoriented. I've never felt mad at God. I have felt mad at people who abused their position. But when we look at the beautiful stories in the Bible, um, it's not how God intended for it to be. So we need people to remind us that your pastor fell. He was living in sin but it doesn't change who God is. And it's not how God would want it to be.
1: Yeah, that's, it's a beautiful reminder and so necessary. And I love how uh, throughout the book, there's obviously a lot of scripture and uh, biblical reference and theology. But at the very beginning, you went to Matthew chapter nine, where Jesus is talking about the people as uh, helpless and as harassed. And again, I'm sure that was your experience of being harassed by the people that were opposed to you and felt betrayed by the stance you took and helpless in that you stand by and there's nothing you can do. So even Jesus 2000 year old words in the gospels are a kind mm-hmm. of balm for what's there today, not just instruction, but almost a kind of anticipated framework for how to handle this. And that's yeah. why I love how the, uh, the book, A Church Called Tove is a map for how to create cultures of goodness. So I said I would ask you this, can you talk about what happens when a church is toxic? What that looks like? What are some of the telltale signs?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I also wanna say before we jump into that, equally beautiful to me in the Bible are the stories of people who sinned, and then they confessed, and they asked Jesus for forgiveness, And he gives it and they're, they live in the truth. And I've always, I still hold on to hope for that for Willow Creek and for some of these pastors for Bill Hybels. I feel like Willow Creek is such a grace filled community that if he would, if he, I just see it as such a beautiful story of, of confessing and asking for forgiveness, it would erupt with grace and welcoming him back to the truth, to the truth. So Yes I love the stories in the Bible of his care for the wounded. I also love the stories of beautiful redemption in the Bible yeah as can well. I
1: and can I respond to that I wholeheartedly agree you would have no way of knowing this but 28 years ago I was caught in a double life as a sex addict while I was starting out uh, as a job, uh, at a Christian university. And that was the worst day of my life, but also became the best day of my life because mm-hmm. it set me free in a way that I never imagined. I thought that I was just going to have to live the rest of my life, hiding, you know, 90% of the truth, confessing 10% and that that was as good as it got. And I was just going to mm-hmm. have to kind of resist and the shame and the anxiety that I carried around. But what that opened up a door was the opportunity to be known, to be forgiven and to be ultimately restored and healed and now have a ministry that I never anticipated. So the sadness of all of this, and this is true with every, every toxic church and abusive church culture, but that especially an institution that is known for grace and embracing brokenness and having programs about that and, um, that, that, that kind of humility and trust wasn't, um, wasn't deep inside of the leadership at the top down. And mm-hmm. that's the the tragedy in all this. Um, I'll often say that it's not the sin that um, is the barrier to redemption. It's the hiding or the lack yeah. of trusting it. Not that yeah. the sin doesn't have consequences, but thank you for saying that because mm-hmm. uh, the people listening to this, there are going to be people that are on the side of perpetrator or abuser or having secrets and, Will feel like the very worst thing that could possibly happen, but but if the gospel is true, it will become the best thing that ever happened for everybody There's, involved.
2: Yeah, that it's beautiful. There's freedom on the other side.
1: Yeah. So, what do these toxic cultures yeah. look like, especially before there is any kind of exposure? And many of these will never become public.
2: Each of these could be hour long conversations. So, I know that I'm an, I'm going to go like speed read through them. But what we did is we researched these churches and there were some habits that emerged. I guess we could call them habits of toxicity. And in the book, we countered each one with a Tove alternative. So like I said, each of these could be hour long conversations, but the patterns and habits that rose to the surface for us of traits of toxicity and toxic institutions were a narcissist culture, which we've seen an increase in lately. Rather than nurturing grace, we saw um, fear cultures. Toxic places have employees that are afraid to talk and tell the truth for fear of repercussions. Um, Rather than putting people first, toxic churches or organizations defend the institution and are overly loyal to protecting its image rather than putting people first like Jesus did. We talked about this one a lot already with Willow Creek. Toxic organizations don't tell the truth. Rather than just coming clean, they make false narratives. Um, They refuse to enter into a season of confession and repentance. Toxic churches, rather than nurturing a spirit of justice they resist it by being overly loyal to each other and to the leader. Celebrity culture is another big one that rose to the surface. A lot of this even though we we saw you don't have to have a huge church to have a pastor that might be abusing power. But there's a special temptation with the large mega churches a celebrity culture can develop, and we found that to be highly toxic. And then one that was um, has been big with my dad for decades is the leadership culture. Um, Eugene Peterson he says railed against it for years, where rather than being a pastor, being a pastor, we've seen a pastor. The role of a pastor become more like a leader, and this leadership culture develops where business practices creep in, and we found that to be highly toxic when you're trying to run a church like a business.
1: And if I can interject, there's something yeah. so, so good about the fact that that was identified, but it's in, in the evangelical church, it's almost like saying you're a communist and uh, on the fourth of July, to say that leadership is something that should be questioned—that whole culture of leadership, where yeah. you're applying corporate principles—and uh, nothing wrong with excellence, right? But even excellence can become a kind of idol where people become secondary and to the to their function. Um, but but the the whole idea about the leadership culture is that. Uh, you pointed out in the book that Jesus never talked about leadership. He talked about shepherding and he talked about uh, fathering and and servanthood and those kinds of things. But we've elevated leadership as a kind of culture to something that's like the new spiritual goal.
2: Right. You know, I I asked my dad about this because he's the theologian. I'm the teacher. Um, I said, you know, tell me more about Jesus and leadership and what he said about it. And my dad said, Jesus and Paul, and of course, I'm not, I'm not a theologian, so don't quote me, but he said something like, um, Jesus and Paul did not talk about leadership. And when you look at the role of a pastor, it's not a leader. And he said there's a little bit of a case could be made for a pastor as somebody who stands in front of people. And some could interpret that as leader. But the role of a pastor does not intersect with being a leader. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting how far off course we've gotten then? Because, you know, I, before I saw any red flags at Willow Creek, I do remember thinking, Okay, I don't have the, I don't think I have the gift of leadership. I mean, at least I I wasn't utilizing it at the time if I did. And I thought I don't feel as important. I remember feeling that. Like the gift of leadership was elevated at Willow Creek above all other gifts. And I remember sitting there at the leadership summit which Willow Creek held every year thinking like, okay, you don't all have this gift of leadership. There's no way that all of you have it. And I thought, you know, my gift is, I don't know, let's encouragement. Why we don't have conferences about encouragement. I don't I just don't feel as important because I don't have that gift. And it just seemed like it was elevated above all others. And I don't know, again, I'm not a theologian, but that just doesn't seem like a theme in the Bible to strive right. to be a leader that everybody knows about.
1: Well, and where your dad went with that in a chapter, I think, was that what Jesus did talk about was followership yes. and what it meant to be a follower and to submit yourself to Jesus and to one another. Um, and it seems like the idea of leadership, especially in some of the megachurches, is defined less by gifting and more by charisma, personality, yeah. charm, and a person's attraction to someone, which seems like then that actually sets up. Uh, this this platform that people are standing on that then gets kicked out from underneath them and everybody finds themselves disillusioned.
2: Yeah, at, at one point, my dad put Willow Creek's job description for its next pastor into a word cloud. And I think it's in the book. I'd have to flip pages quickly to find it. But he compared in the book, he has two word clouds, what the Bible says about a pastor and what Willow Creek's job description was. And they're completely opposite. Mm -hmm. They were looking for like a CEO type, a person who was well-connected that could raise money. That was charismatic. There was no mention of a seminary degree. It was about performance and being able to raise money and draw people to the church. So that was another very interesting conversation is I think we need voices like my dad, who has spent his lifetime studying the Bible, who can say, listen, this isn't what the Bible is is saying that a pastor is. And not that it's wrong, but it can lead people astray.
1: Right. Like that is the way to do it. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't bring up the fact that a common response to this is, well. Look at what God has done through this organization. Look at the fruit that he's born. And your life is one of them, right? You met your husband there mm-hmm. as part of a young adults ministry. Yeah. And yes. it's, it's frustrating and confusing. And I'm sure somebody somewhere has a coherent theological answer, but that God will use Uh, broken people and a toxic culture, and there's still fruit that comes out of that. And then that's a temptation to justify that as long as there's fruit, that we tolerate what is toxic. Because I've heard over and over again, well, if we told the truth about this, then the name of Christ would be shamed. But what if the name of Christ was less shamed by the process of humility and redemption? Like, this is what his followers do. This is how they live. Right. Uh, um, Right talk a little bit about the celebrity culture. I mean, your dad has written 80 books. He's not quote-unquote Billy Graham, but he's a brilliant man, as I've uh, interacted with him just a little bit. He's a force to be reckoned with, with his size and his voice and his preaching. And so you've been around a lot of like famous people, I imagine. And it feels like the goal of a pastor of a church is to make it big to get a best-selling book, you know, a podcast with a lot of downloads and a bunch of followers. How do we as a church live in a way where where the celebrity culture has less uh, dazzle for us?
2: Yeah, you know, I have a couple of thoughts. First of all, it's not just the leader. It's the congregation that feeds the leader, which feeds the congregation. It's a, it's, it's a cycle. And I felt I participated in the celebrity culture of Willow Creek unknowingly when I left the church and we did not leave because of the scandal. We thankfully were gone before the whole thing erupted. Um, I think it would have been a lot harder to, to speak and write what we did had we actually been attending. But for me, I did not see clearly the toxicity and the problem that I was perpetuating until I left and we started attending a little Anglican church and I thought, my goodness, there's no screens. Stop- Shockingly, one of the most obvious things to me was there was no clapping ever for anybody Nobody clapped in church, which I thought, this is probably a lot healthier. We don't have people getting up on a stage because there is no stage. We don't make their their face huge because there's no screens. And we certainly don't stand up and give them a round of applause. So... I don't want to rail on mega churches. We had a friend read our manuscript before it went to print and he said, I think you guys have been a little tough on megachurches. So we softened it quite a bit um, with his with his valuable feedback. I don't think that all megachurches um have a celebrity culture, but I do think it requires a person of very strong character to to pastor one. I'm not gonna say lead one, but to pastor one to not fall temptation to the celebrity. I don't want to be a celebrity church pastor, but if I was one, would I fall temptation to to the green room and feeling important and having private jets? I pro- I don't know, probably. I just I don't think humans are made to be put on a stage and applauded and especially linking them to God. You have to have a really really strong character to do that and not fall susceptible and to pastor your people so that they're not worshiping you. You know, it, I, I remember being in the, the um, foyer of Willow Creek one time and Bill Hybels walked by and he had his bodyguards around him. And I literally like squealed like, "There's you know, I remember my husband was like, he's not a celebrity. I'm like, yeah, he is. You know, like, so not only did he behave like one, but, We, I treated him that way, too. So it takes both. It's a cycle. It's it's the congregation feeding the celebrity and it's the person on stage behaving as if they are one.
1: Yeah, I well, I appreciate you saying that because I have my stories of that, too. Where I know this is a sexist term, fangirl, but I've been a fan boy. And the funny thing is, is over the years, the people that uh, have been my heroes, or at least a handful of them, have called me up and become counseling clients saying, I need to deal with how to how to live in this crazy world of being a celebrity. And so I'm, I'm reminded that this whole conversation mm-hmm. and how you, by the way, I don't think we define the word Tove, So there might be people saying, is that an acronym for like top of the top? order view or something, but tov is the Hebrew word for goodness, right?
2: Yes, that's correct.
1: So this whole conversation is about ultimately not the toxicity, but how do you create a culture of goodness? Um, And there's a fundamental brokenness inside of human beings that when we become Christians, we say, okay, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and now I have eternal life and I'm going to heaven. But if we don't deal with that internal brokenness and pursue emotional health as the other side of the coin of our spiritual health then this kind of toxicity and brokenness will will play out our our pain that's not transformed gets transmitted and so mm-hmm. i uh i think i would like to write a book with your dad called a uh, a soul called tove you know that the, mm-hmm. the what the restored soul looks like so can we shift gears and you're right this could each of these topics would be a wonderful one hour conversation and talk a little bit about what the tove culture is and how you create that.
2: Sure. So we, like I said earlier, we researched these habits or traits of toxic churches, toxic cultures, and the habits that I covered earlier rose to the surface. And we wrote about each of them. And then what we did is we countered each one with a Tove alternative. So here they are. So for example, narcissistic culture is, um, A sign of a toxic culture where you've got a narcissist leading the charge. We read and researched narcissism and thought, okay, the opposite of narcissism is empathy. Churches, people who are narcissistic cannot feel other people's pain. So rather than having to resist a narcissist culture, you need to nurture empathy to resist the fear culture where people are constantly walking on eggshells and afraid of telling the truth and afraid of asking their leaders questions to counter that you need to nurture grace to counter institution. My dad called it institution creep where the institution, the church is starting to feel like a business instead of a church to mm. counter that you put people first. That's the toe of alternative. Um, Telling the truth is really the heart of the book. There is the the most meat is in the middle, where we believe that the tove alternative to re, to telling false narratives is to tell the truth, to speak the truth, to surrender to it, to live freely in it. My dad has a beautiful section on Yom Kippur about. Um, how it was celebrated every year in Israel and our modern day, a nice modern day equivalent is the season of Lent leading up to Easter and Tov Tov organizations and Tov cultures, they tell the truth, they admit their sins and they, they mourn them and lament for them. And then they live in the freedom of God's forgiveness. Tov churches, rather than being loyal to the leader, where um we saw this a lot with with our Willow Creek friends they were so loyal to to the the Hybels family or, or to to the name of the church that they didn't nurture justice for the abused and so we felt that the alternative to a toxic loyalty culture would be to nurture justice resisting the celebrity c- culture is nurturing service would be a tove alternative and my dad my dad always says in interviews like He believes pastors should be serving, but don't tell anybody that you did it. You don't get up on stage and talk about how you spent the weekend. Um, Don't tell anybody. That's not the point of service. You can tell your spouse, but you don't need to tell everybody. So a Tov alternative to celebrity is to nurture service within your congregations. And then finally, resisting the leader culture. What does that look like? It means nurturing Christ-likeness, to be like Him, not to be striving to be a leader that's well-known, but to be like Christ instead. So we believe that if churches nurture these habits of goodness, these tove good alternatives, we're hoping that it could be just a culture shift where we're not nurturing toxicity, we're nurturing goodness and healing instead.
1: I love that. And of course, all of those, uh, have to be so intentional because I think every church, if they are halfway empathic human beings would say, well, of course we're all about those things, right? But they, they, uh, they wouldn't necessarily see the underbelly of that or what would play out naturally. And again, it just, it's such a, um, requirement that there's a fundamental humility that just because there's a vision, and people are coming and sitting in the seats and people are excited that they're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I sure appreciate you taking the time today. And I appreciate uh, what I imagine were endless hours of research and collaboration with your dad, Scott McKnight, but the book, a church called Tove: forming a goodness culture that resists abuses of power and promotes healing. I just think this is an essential read for anybody in leadership from pastors to associate pastors, to elders, um, and anybody at all who wants to to create uh, a Tove culture, a culture of wholeness. My final question would be, what would you recommend for the person who has experienced uh, a, a, an abuse of power, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, or other from a church? What would you uni- uniquely say to heal?
2: I would say find a counselor. I we've had story after story after story and being hurt, being wounded by a church is uniquely painful. Being hurt by people who represent God is a terrible kind of pain. And I've learned that we can't expect the church to to fix what's been done and i think what i found is most important is telling your story to a safe counselor whether that's a you know a trained therapist or psychologist is going to help heal more than anything um talking to other people who have been through the situation might help you feel less crazy but After listening to survivor stories for the past couple of years, that's my best and advice that I can offer is to find a safe counselor that can guide and help heal.
1: Well, amen to that. We're all for that. So a final thank you to you, Laura Barringer, for this conversation and for the work that you've done with A Church Called Tove.
2: Thank you, Michael, for having me. It was truly a blessing for me to be with you today.
0: So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com That's RestoringTheSoul.com